0: That song, It Is Well With My Soul, and yet, Father, there's probably many in here that it's not too well. And we need to hear your voice of comfort, of strength, and courage, that we might know you and know you well. Father, we pray that you'd help us as we come to your word today, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would give us understanding but give us the ability to understand what it is you want us to understand from the scriptures that you inspired. We thank you for the scriptures. Just think about how we would be so lost without that. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving that to us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the incarnate word, the word made flesh. And we thank you, Father, that you have done that for us, that we have the forgiveness of sins and life with you forever. Father, we pray for many that may be struggling today. We think of Sally Holt, a long way away in in New York and struggling, and we pray that you'd be with her as she broke her leg, and we'd be with her, and pray for Linda Welch that her eyes would do better, and we just pray, Father, you'd be with Kathy Vogt who broke her leg, and Father, there's so many needs around us right now. We thank you for many people that are helping. On the other side, Father, we thank you for Beth and Scott and the new baby girl, the baby girl they have for Anne, and we thank you for this child and pray she'll grow up to know you and love you and serve you in many ways. Father, we would ask that you'd help us as we come to your scriptures, that we would be wide awake, ready to hear what you have for us this day. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us in recent weeks, you may remember that we've been doing a series And looking towards the fact of going all the way back to the time of Hannah and then Samuel and going all the way then now to the time of the King David. And if you are with us last week, you might remember um, when we were looking in this passage that we did a little bit of a review. And uh, that review, uh, it talked about the fact that if you are with us last week, if you remember the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was by far the most sacred thing that they had. They didn't have gods that they worship, but they had the Ark of the Covenant that was special, and the Philistines captured it. And when the Philistines captured it, it was a disaster for Israel. And if you know the story from last week when we were studying it, we saw that Israel had been going downhill, getting worse and worse. Eli was old, his sons were corrupt, and finally God says, enough, and there was a battle, and they lost and Eli's two sons were killed, and Eli died, and Israel's like at the bottom of the whole barrel there. And you remember from last week when we looked at it, it said that happened that the Philistines got the Ark of the Covenant, and they put it right next to their god, Dagon. And they thought, that's great, we got both of them here. And if you remember the story, they came back the next morning, and Dagon's on the ground, face down, their god. I was like, that's really bad when that happens. So they put him back up on the shelf where he needed to be, and the next day they come in. He's not only face down on the ground, but his hands are gone and his head is gone. And when you're in that kind of situation as a god, you're not doing too well. And so they realize something's really weird here because it seems like ever since we've gotten this Ark of the Covenant, things are going wrong for us. And if you remember last week, it got a little bit weird at times, but we were talking about the fact that there were these tumors. And we don't know what they were exactly, but people were having terrible tumors. Many people think it was back from, a, from bubonic plague, but things were bad. And so finally they, at Ashdod, where they had it, they said, we don't need this, how do we get rid of it? So they said, well, you know, give it to Billy, he'll take it. Well, what happened? Went from one place to another, and no one wanted the ark. The Philistines were trying to get rid of it because everywhere they went, it only meant trouble for them. And so what we saw last week was the fact that they decided, we need to get rid of this place. We need to get rid of this uh, uh, thing that we've got. And so what they did is they had a elaborate thing that said, we're going to give it back to the Israelites because it ain't working for us. And so that's where we come into our passage here this morning. There's two major things that are happening in our passage in chapters 7 and 8. One of them is a very positive one. We've had a lot of negative ones in the last three or four weeks. But this is a turnaround, a good one. The other one is a little more ambivalent, and we'll get to that, Lord willing, in a little bit. But if you notice in this passage what we have, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 7, time went by until 20 years had passed since the art had been taken to Kiriath Now, it's kind of amazing to think that this most precious item that they had, the Ark of the Covenant, is sitting like in somebody's backyard for 20 years. And they hadn't tried to take it up into Jerusalem. But then there's this great phrase that follows it. Then, oops, excuse me, went backwards there. Then the whole house of Israel began to seek the Lord. And that is a crucial, crucial thing, because it's like after all these years, After all the struggle, after all the sin, after having corrupt priests, now people are saying, you know what, we hit bottom. And now we need to find God. And we're hoping, of course, maybe that's going to happen to America too at some point. We should be praying for that. But at their point, suddenly they realize we are a wreck and we need God and we need him now. And that's what's so great about this passage. The whole house of Israel began to seek the Lord. It said, Samuel told them, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of your foreign gods and your asterisks that are among you. Now, this is a big deal because they had these other gods that they were worshiping. And to be honest, their worship was a whole lot more excitement than it was for the Israelites. I mean, they had sacred prostitution. And, you know, that got the guys there coming to the services. And it was like, how could things get this bad? That here is a place where the holiness of God is seen in the most special way at the Ark of the Covenant. And God saying to him now, okay, or I should say Samuel, speaking for God, says, listen, if you're serious about this, we're giving up all these other gods. And Ashtoreth, that you so, think so important, she's got to go. And we're going to come back to only worshiping God. One God. So notice what happens. God says, now dedicate yourself to the Lord and worship only him. Then he'll rescue from the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines had been driving them nuts for generations. They were powerful. They were strong. They had five major cities, and they kept going after them. And it's saying, if you'll just return to the Lord, wait till you see what God will do. If you will give him this opportunity as you return, by returning to him. So the Israelites removed the baal, one of the most common ones, and the Ashtores, and they only worship the Lord. In other words, thank you. Thank you, God. I mean, this is the kind of the restoration and healing they were looking for. So Samuel said, gather all of Israel at Mizpah, not that far from where they're at, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. And so what happens? You remember it said, then they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. And to be honest with you, we don't know exactly what that means. It's not a common thing. We know later on when they had the um, tabernacle, they would have a pouring water thing and probably had that idea of water as a source of life. So when they're pouring out water, it's like they're pouring out life, and they're uh, recognizing that this comes directly from God. But it said, they fasted that day, and there they confessed. We hadn't heard about fasting so far, but now they're fasting. Now they're doing what it takes to get back to understand the Lord. And therefore, they confessed. And here's the most important part. It's confession. They confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. When they hit bottom and they recognize their need for God, they realize you come back and there has to be restoration. There's got to be repentance. And so Samuel began to leave the Israelites at Mizpah as their judge. When the Philistines heard that the Israelites were gathered at Mizpah, the rulers marched up toward Israel. And all of a sudden, they're nervous. Hey, we're just doing well. The nation's turning around. We're starting to follow God. And now, here comes those Philistines again. Well, said when the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. The Israelites said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us. So he will save us from the hand of the Philistines. And then it says, Samuel took a young lamb. A young lamb, a baby lamb, could not could, had to be at least 12 days old before they could sacrifice it. But they took a lamb and they offered it as a whole burnt offering to the, to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel and the Lord answered him. So what we're seeing is God answering. They're crying out. God answered. We need help. He will help. And so we see a good thing happening on them. Verse 10, Samuel was offering burnt offering as the Philistines drew near to fight against Israel. Now get the picture. They see the Philistines coming. The Philistines are strong. The Philistines have beat them a lot. And here's the time they're coming. And you can imagine people saying... um, Samuel, I don't know if you noticed, there's like hundreds of people coming and they are bigger than we are and they've got more weapons than we do. I know, I know, but um, we're gonna have a burnt offering here. Uh, Samuel, you realize that this could take a while to burn this goat or this lamb? I know, stay with me. Uh, You know. Did you notice how close they are now? And he's going, yeah, I do notice that. Thank you for noticing for me. And as they get closer and closer, it says, The Lord thundered loudly loudly against the Philistines that day. And what that was, was it actually thunder? Was it just some noise? We don't know. Whatever it was, it was like, boom. And they all like panicked. And they all started running, the Philistines. They threw them into such confusion that they fled before Israel. It's like, wow. Can you believe it? God helped us to that point that the Philistines are gone. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah. They pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to a place called Beth And we don't really know exactly where that place is. But afterwards, here's an important part. Samuel took a stone and he set it upright between Mizpah and Shain and he named it Ebenezer. Eben is mean with stone or rock. Ezer means help, in other words, the rock of help, the stone of help. And Saint explained it, the Lord has helped us to this point. In other words, he's been with us to this point. Why would we think he's not going to continue to help us as we stay faithful to him? And so this passage is important. They said he named it Ebenezer, a reminder of God's faithfulness When they turned around and repented and came to him. So the Philistines were subdued. They didn't invade into Israel's territory again. The Lord's hand was against the Philistine all of Samuel's life. In other words, do you see, my people, when you come in repentance to me, how good things can be when we live in a covenant life with God? So you see what this is like? You were struggling all the time. The Philistines were taking things from you. The Ammonites were coming against you. The Midianites were against you. And we're in a period now where things are good. And we're, str- we're not struggling. It said so the Lord's hand was against the Philistine all of Samuel's life. A period of help, a period of things were good for them. Now notice, if you will, verse, the next verse. The cities from Ekron to Gath, what had been taken from Israel, were restored. Israel even rescued their surrounding territory from Philistine control. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. They'd been fighting the Amorites for decades. And here they had it where they could work when things were good and things were getting better. Now notice if you would in this next, uh, as we go on this, things were positive for them and things were moving for them. Verse 15, Samuel judged Israel throughout his life. Every year he'd go on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel all these locations. Give you kind of an idea that said then he would return to Ramah because his home was there, and he judged Israel there, and there he built an altar to the Lord there. You've got a picture there. You see there's Ramah, they would go around to Gilgal, getting closer to the Jordan River, then back, moving up, and coming and making things. This reminds me, by the way, the early American, where you you had circuit-riding preachers. It would go around from church to church to church. Here you've got Samuel on a circuit going around teaching God's people. Now notice if you would, when we come to this passage here in Samuels chapter 1, we just had this passage that said do you see how good things can be when you're keeping the covenant and faithful to God? It's like it can be great, can't it? Yes, it can. And things were good, but this next little section starts bringing a question of, do you really trust God? And his big question is, is God enough for you? Look at this passage, if you would. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his son to be judge over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel, not the Joel prophet, who came a couple centuries later. His second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba, which is a little bit odd because he's up in the north, and is way down in the south in the desert. Why, we don't know. But the point was, however, his sons did not walk in the ways they turned towards dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Now stop there for a minute. What does this remind you of? Well, Eli. And here's a strange thing. Saul, excuse me, Samuel, as a young boy, grew up watching two corrupt priests, Hophni and Phinehas. He knew how terrible that was, how much God hated what they were doing. And yet his own two sons turned away from God. Now, again, we've got to be careful in saying, well, that must be the parents' fault. I mean, people make choices. But it is strikingly weird in one sense that both Eli's sons, who were priests, were corrupt, and Samuel himself, his two sons, were corrupt as well. And so it said, so all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they went to Samuel at Ramah. And when I notice what it says, they said to him, look, you're old. Samuel said, thank you for noticing. Okay, look, you're old. Your sons don't follow your example. He knew that. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations here. Now think about this for a moment. Who has been their king to this point? It's God. God. God is their king. He is the one who has left them. He is the one who's led them. He is the one who birthed them in that sense where they, became, they had made the covenant with God. Who is their God? Their God is the one who took them across the Red Sea. He's the one that took them through the wilderness. He's the one that brought water out of the rock. He's the one that had the tabernacle built. He is the one that gave them quail when they got tired of manna. He is the one that took them across the wilderness. All this is their God, he is their king. And now, God's people who just went through this great reformation, kind of like a Martin Luther kind of reformation of God's people, all of a sudden they're saying, well, yeah, but they got a king, and they got a king, and they got a king, we ain't got no king. Well, God's saying, of course you have your king. I'm your king. I've always been your king. I'm your father. I'm the one, by the way, Who will let you win that battle that we just talked about? And it's saying, really? Is this what you want? They said, therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations. And God's saying, are you sure you want to do this? When they said, well, give us a king to judge us, Israel considered the demand sinful. And he prayed to the Lord, why do you want this? You can't get a better king than the Lord God that we worship. And they're like, no, no, we got to have a king that we can see. But the Lord told them, wait a minute, Samuel, I know you're upset about this. He said, listen, listen to the people and everything they say to you. Now notice this key phrase, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. That's a tragic statement. They have not rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. Imagine God saying that to you. You know what? You rejected me. Now notice if you would. They're doing, God said, they're doing the very same thing to you that they've done to me. Since the day I brought them out from Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. In other words, here we go again. Have we been along this road before? Multiple times. Then why is it that you want a king, another king? But he said, all right, listen to them but you got to warn them. He said, you must solemnly warn them and tell them about the rights of the king who's going to rule over you. In other words, you think it's going to be honky dory if we only have a king like all the other kings are around. He said, you better be careful what you ask for. Samuel told the Lord's word to the people who were asking for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will rule over you. He can take your sons and put them in his use in his chariots, on his horses, running in front of his chariots. He said, You can point for them the use of commanders and thousands of commanders of fifties to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, or to make his weapons of war, or for equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, bakers, he said he can take your best fields, vineyards, olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards. He can give them to his officials and his servants. He can take your male servants. He can take your female servants, your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his works. He can take a tenth of your flocks he can, and, and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you're going to cry out because the king you've chosen for yourself, but the Lord won't answer you in that day. Remember, they said, you've rejected him. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us. He'll go out before us, and he'll fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. And it's a tragedy. The greatest king they could ever have, they said, we don't want him. Their king was God. And after coming through a wonderful reformation, things look bad again. By the way, that's not unusual. If you look upon even America, with something like the first uh, Great Awakening. There was this wonderful movement, people coming back to God, but boy, when it went bad, it went really bad. Second Great Awakening, the same thing. The Reformation, we saw that a lot went very well, but then there was some really bad after effects. And it seems like that's what's going on here. Here they had turned back to God. They'd repented, they'd found life in Him. And then here all of a sudden it's like, I don't believe this. Here we are again, have we learned nothing and the reality is they hadn't learned much. Now notice this verse. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. Then Samuel told the men of Israel, each of you, go back to your city. In other words, all right, I'll start finding a king for you. That's what you want? You sure you're going to want it? Because here it comes. Now notice this passage. It's interesting. This passage is so significant because it gives so many interesting things that are happening in this story. The first thing I want to notice about two or three things I want to focus on in a minute is notice that word Ebenezer. That word Ebenezer we made the point already means stone, and then it goes with the word help. So it's the stone of help. And that word got become well known again in a song that we sang and stuff where it talks about here I raise my Ebenezer. And what's interesting, that became something important because an Ebenezer, what we know from it, it talked about this is it says this question about, like what's your Ebenezer? Ebenezer was for them a marking thing. In other words, when we had that passage, it was very clear. It said, "Okay, here is this stone. This stone is going to be memorial for us. We're going to remember this. Every time we see the stone, it's a reminder of, look what God has done for you. And so for them, it was very important. You go back even further to when they crossed over the Jordan River and came into the land. What did Joshua tell them to do? Take a rock from each one of the 12 tribes, carry it, and put it in the water. That when every time people cross there at that crossing and see that pile of 12 big rocks, people are gonna say, hey, what's this all about? Oh, this reminded us how God uh, prepared for us in a great uh, victory. How God opened up the waters and stopped the waters that we could cross over on dry land. And they said, this is a reminder And so there's a question we come back to this whole thing about saying, you know, what do we mean by this Ebenezer? It's to ask the question, what are your Ebenezers? And what I mean by this, what are the things in your life as a believer where you look back on that and say, you know what, that was an important point. That was a turning point. That was a moment where maybe I experienced God in a way I hadn't experienced in a long, long time. And so that's something I want you to think about. What, when you look back at your walk with God, when you look at the times that you've been there, where would you say is my Ebenezer is when I went blank, when I did this, when I was in that hospital. and But it was interesting because those are things that God gives us so we can look back and realize his faithfulness. By the way, in a few moments, we're going to go to another thing that reminds us. An Ebenezer of blood of the fact that Christ is gonna give his life. Second thing I wanna focus on, by the way, here's a quote I like when it's about this Ebenezer. One of the guys made this quote. He said, you know, we stand in the present, but dwell on the past in order that we can be steadfast for the future. It's a nice quote. We stand in the present, but dwell in the past, in order that we can be steadfast for the future. In other words, when we look back and see God's faithfulness, it often gives us the courage and the strength and the faith to do what he's asked us to do. So it's a good question to ask us, what is God speaking to us in that? second thing I want you to notice in this passage is that phrase they talked about, they poured out the water, they fasted, they confessed. That last word, we have sinned, Against the Lord. This passage is great in dealing with the issue of the fact that we come to the Lord absolutely needing God. And it's not just we come to him once, so yeah, I repented of my sin and now I'm a Christian. It's like repentance, as Martin Luther said, is a daily thing. There's probably, maybe I just speak myself, we probably, most of us, cannot get beyond 15 minutes before we've done some kind of sin. It may not be something dramatic, but it may be an attitude. It may be something where we thought about a person, we said about a person. Luther made that same point. For most of us, we have to have this whole idea of repentance as a daily thing. Saying, Lord, I blew it again. It's been another day where I had an opportunity and I missed it. Here's I made a cruel comment about a person that I shouldn't have said it. And Lord, would you forgive me? And what we saw in our passage in the beginning was, there was real repentance, and things really changed because of that repentance. And yet, the reality was it didn't take long before it started wearing off, and then they wanted their king. But you know, it, it is important. One guy wrote this. He said, Why do you do? Gen-? He said, Genuine repentance is the proper preparation for God's mercy. We all want God's mercy, His strength. It starts with repentance, it's telling God what He already knows. Yeah, I know. You sinned. I already know that. So what are you going to do about it? Well, I want to confess it. I want to acknowledge to you that I failed. And I, I claim the blood of Christ that has been poured out for me for restoration and for healing. There's an interesting article that came out in the um, New York, no, it wasn't New York Times, uh, one of the other magazines. But what was interesting, it had an interesting article by God that many of you are familiar with, Rod Dreher, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. He's an interesting character, Uh, very good writer. He's he's the writer, he's a senior editor for the American magazine, very, very sharp guy. And what's interesting, he wrote this article, uh, I think it was on Newsday, maybe, I can't remember. But he said, it's called, I'm Still Not Going Back to the Catholic Church. He wrote this article, because many people were gaga of the fact that the new pope was so available and so friendly, and he didn't want to focus upon the social issues. And he said, oh, more people are going to come back to the Catholic Church. And and what Rob said, uh, said, he said, no, I don't think that's going to happen, but it ain't going to happen for me. He basically said, I've been a faithful Roman Catholic for 14 years, and I'm leaving it. He said, I can't take it anymore. He said, for 14 years, I've been going from church to church when I move around, and I go to Mass, and I want to hear God's word, and what I hear about is, God loves you. God loves you. Because there's nothing wrong with that, because God does love you. And the New Testament's full of talking about how God loves you. He said, it's not, that's not the issue. He said, that's the only thing they talk about, is God loves you. And he said, I just can't take it anymore. And it's interesting what he said. He said this. He said, it all came to me in one Ash Wednesday, I attended Mass at my comfortable suburban parish. I heard the priest deliver a sermon describing Lent as a time when we should all come to love ourselves more. And he's like, you know, gag me with E.T.'s finger. I can't take this anymore. It's like, what? Here, at this special place at Mass, where we're talking about the death of Christ on our behalf, The priest is telling us we need to learn to love ourselves more. Most of us are doing pretty well at that already. And it's like, are you kidding me? And he says, I "I just can't take it. Listen to what he said. I knew the depths of the sins from which I was being delivered, and it felt wrong to treat his amazing grace like it was a common courtesy. As the reggae song says, everybody wants to get to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And he said, here's what it was for me. He said, was I frustrated because the priest wouldn't preach God's judgment instead of God's mercy? Hmm, By no means. I was frustrated because they wouldn't preach God's judgment at all, which is to say they preached Christ without the cross. Now that is fascinating. That is a Roman Catholic guy, very faithful to the church for 14 years, who says, I'm done. I've had it. For almost 2,000 years, the Catholic church, whatever you think about it, at least you heard something about the cross and about Jesus. And he said, I'm gonna sit there and listen to priests tell me about how I need to learn to love myself. He says, I'm gone. By the way, he went Eastern Orthodox. He joined an Eastern Orthodox church. Now think about that for a minute. Here's a guy who sincerely loves God. And he says, you know what? I'm out, I'm finished. I can't do this anymore. Because the reality is the cross is at the very center. Now let me stop and be very careful. For any of you think maybe you're Roman Catholic or maybe your background and you think I'm being mean to the Catholics, I'm trying not to because the reality is it's no different than many evangelical churches today. You can go to many churches today where it's the same old story. God loves you. God loves you so much. God, you, you need to love yourself. Look at some of the most popular writers in American evangelicalism today and it's all about you. It's all about how, how you need to be happy and how God wants to make this happy for you. And rarely do you hear people talk about that. There is a judgment, and one day you're going to stand judged before God. But there is life in Jesus Christ, and there's forgiveness of sins. See, it's not just a Roman Catholic issue. It's a Christian issue. And if we think we can just walk away from it, we're kidding ourselves. We have to go back to the beginning and recognize that when we come here every week, we come recognizing we come here because we need this. We need the reminder. It is in many way our Ebenezer. It's a cross. Is our Ebenezer telling us, do you remember what happened? You deserve death in hell. Instead, you got freedom, and you got forgiveness, and you've got life, and you've got a future, and you've got a hope, and you're going to be with Christ forever. And if you ever start forgetting that, that'll be the worst thing you ever did. Because at the very core of what it is to be a believer is to know what Christ has done for us, and we've accepted the salvation that he gives us so freely. And so it makes sense that when we come to this table, that we start thinking, okay, this is now my Ebenezer. This is your Ebenezer right now. It's saying, here's something we look back to a cross nearly 2,000 years ago and say, apart from that cross and his sacrificial, substitutional death on our behalf for us to have life, we'd be lost. We'd have nothing. We'd have no hope. But the good news is, because of our Ebenezer, we've got great hope. And every week, the Lord reminds us to come. Come and remember what I've done for you. Remember what I'm going to do for you as you follow me. And so we have this great opportunity to come before the Lord.